Scaling and growing a startup can be tricky and sometimes even mysterious. It requires leaders to have a breadth of knowledge on company building strategies across marketing, sales, product, and talent. The Startup Guide to Growth was created to be the definitive podcast on growth strategies for startups. Hosted by Sapphire Ventures, we bring you actionable growth strategies that you can use to scale your company through insights and stories from accomplished operators. Ready to grow your startup? Then listen up. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions or views of Sapphire Ventures, LLC. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes and should not be construed as an investment recommendation or otherwise relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Hey, everybody. My name is Abhishek Lahoti, and I am the Vice President of Business Development for Europe at Sapphire Ventures. On this episode, I spoke to Sean Gardner, who is the SVP of Business Development at ThoughtSpot. Sean is a longtime BD executive who's built and led channel programs at DataRobot, Alteryx, Dell, and Sophos. In today's episode, we discuss the ins and the outs of partnerships and how to make BD a successful endeavor in your business. We'll cover everything from big partners to the makeup of the team, and Sean will share his extensive experience on all things business development. Hey, Sean, thanks for joining us. Before we get started, can you provide the listeners with some information on your background? What are your roles, the experiences that led you to ThoughtSpot? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. I started out like some years ago in tech. I won't take you down you know, a long path on that. But more recently, I was with a company called Case. I mean, it wasn't that recently. I think it was kind of a late 2000s. Case was a systems management software company. And I was brought in to run BD for them. I ended up managing a relationship and kicking off a relationship with Dell. You know, Dell had a lot of partners in that domain. They'd invested in some, in some partnerships there. Uh, so we had a lot of work on our hands. We ended, up, you know, we ended up growing that relationship to about half of Case's revenue. And Dell ended up acquiring us about three years in. Uh, so we were one of the first software acquisitions by Dell. I was trying to kind of figure out something interesting to do within Dell. And they said, hey, would you like to go and run Europe? You know, I had expressed interest in that before. We didn't have a big footprint there in Case. They wanted to grow the business. We had a few people in London. And they said, would you be interested? I said, for sure. You know, talk to my wife about it. And uh, they said, well, you know, you can move to Dublin, you can move to London, you could move to Paris, or you could move to Montpellier in the south of France. And so, you know, as a North American, actually a Canadian living in Vancouver, my wife, you know, she said, hey, we're not moving anywhere rainier than Vancouver. Paris sounds great. I didn't speak French, but we were growing the business in Western Europe. And I figured, you know, you might as well just throw yourself in. So we moved to Paris for a few years, had a great experience with Dell, had a lot of sponsorship from Michael Dell down and uh, learned a ton, you know, just building a team across Europe, Middle East, Africa. About three years in, we decided to come back to the West Coast and come back to the Bay Area. And a number of the case folks had got involved at Alteryx. And at the time, Alteryx, this was about 2000. 12 when they got involved, going to 2013. And Sapphire had actually just invested in the Series A. Um, very exciting vision for the company. It was a company that had been around since, I think, 97. Uh, but they were amassing a great team, great core product. And uh, they asked me if I wanted to run BD. You know, I hadn't had experience, actually, in the data analytics space. But obviously, it was a growing space, massive market. And I bet on the market. I bet on the team. And uh, joined Alteryx. And you know, spent about four plus years at Alteryx. I mean, one of the things they were just kicking off a relationship with Tableau. And that really became sort of our anchor partnership with Alteryx. And, you know, not only working with Tableau, but monetizing the ecosystem in and around Tableau, you know, their, par- their channel partnerships, their SI partnerships, 
and, and really becoming synonymous with them. Upon acquisition, I think, or sorry, upon an IPO, I should say, in 2017, you know, about 40 plus percent of our you know, new logos were coming through partners, about through channel partners, I should say. About 70% of all new logos were coming through our partnerships with tech partners like Tableau, too. So, you know, the partners really, you know, helped to uh, fuel Alterx's growth, not only in the US, but, but internationally. After the IPO, you know, I was really intrigued by the MLAI space and uh, joined DataRobot. I led business development at DataRobot for two and a half years. And, you know, being based in the Bay Area, traveling back to Boston quite frequently was, you know, pretty taxing. I decided, you know, I would look for something closer to home and, uh, and left DataRobot uh, just before the pandemic. So that travel may not have mattered at the time, but I uh, joined ThoughtSpot. You know, I really saw ThoughtSpot as the next generation of analytics, being able to sort of build data apps on top of cloud data platforms. Uh, so I joined there running and have been running BD there, you know, for the past 18 months. Wow. That's quite the story. As with many of our guests, I think people should just watch what you're doing. You seem to be picking a lot of winners and I'm happy that you've kind of stayed in the Sapphire family for so long. You mentioned you're running BD at ThoughtSpot. You've clearly done a lot of BD. What is the general sense of BD at ThoughtSpot? What does your team lead? Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's been relatively sort of similar, you know, at a course grain level. You know, we, you know, we lead our channel partners or solution partners, technology partner ecosystem, super important for us. You know, at this stage of the company, it was the same, you know, at Data Robot when I was there. Certainly uh, GSI partners leading our embedded analytics offerings or our OEM partners as well. And also, you know, leading our go-to-market with our cloud transformation. It's been a really exciting time at ThoughtSpot. You know, we've kicked off this relationship with Snowflake, you know, almost two years ago now. And that has also sort of helped us transform the company into a cloud company. So over the past 18 months, we've taken the ThoughtSpot application, put it into the cloud. We've got a fully managed cloud offering. It's growing faster than any other product I've ever been in- involved with. And you know, we're seeing significant adoption. And you know, what we're really seeing here is that as people move to the cloud with platforms like Snowflake and BigQuery and Databricks, they need to rethink the type of data apps and analytics they run on top of it and run it for scale for the complexity of data you know, that's sitting in those platforms. So we've seen pretty significant growth with those partnerships and with the business overall. So it's an exciting time you know, to be at ThoughtSpot. Yeah. You mentioned something in your background, and I think I hear the word channel a lot. For context, I came from Dropbox. We also use that word channel for a team specifically separated from our partnerships BD team, but it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. And I'm curious to get your thoughts, but what, what is the channel environment for an enterprise technology company look like? What are the trends? What's, what are people focusing on? Or, what marketplaces should you be on? It's kind of an open-ended question, but I'm just curious what your initial thoughts are. Yeah. I mean, I think that people kind of think about channel traditionally as reseller partners. And so I think increasingly, you know, when I look at, at channel partners today, it's, it's not about reselling the technology. You know, I think this, the entire resale model, especially with sort of PLG companies and, and also sort of SaaS companies, that resale model is kind of dying, you know, certainly in North America. You know, I think it can be useful internationally. So, you know, I think that that model is kind of going by the wayside. I'll kind of dig into that a little bit more. So we really, you know, I like the term solution partners, right? Because essentially what you want those 
regional SIs or regional partners doing is, you know, how do you get them building on your platform? That's how you really become a platform is you have a, an ecosystem of partners that are building solutions on that platform. And how do you get them to, to really contribute to customer success? I see a big convergence these days between the success of customers and when partners are involved, right? And so we want multiple partners involved in our, you know, in our customer accounts as they expand. And we see you know, significantly better expansion when we get partners involved. So I think that's where we want to look. That's a species of partner we really want to look at, at ThoughtSpot. And I think in general, companies are sort of moving that way. You know, the other thing we're seeing is just sort of this rise of cloud marketplaces. And if you look at, you know, AWS Marketplace, Azure Marketplace, and, and Google Marketplace, all of those now are just essential to be on. And it's, you know, you may get some lift from them, you may get some awareness, but it's more about sort of tapping into that cloud spend that's going into these platforms and being able to leverage that as, you know, being able to leverage that to sort of drive deals and grow the deals, ideally unlock budget that might not have been there before. And then I think the last thing is you will have fulfillment partners, right? We still work with partners that will put our technology on their paper. And I think a lot of companies are you know, still using those partners, certainly in federal government, it becomes very important, but that's just more of a procurement mechanism. And so we certainly will sign up those types of partners. But I think in general, we're looking for partners to go and build IP, differentiate our offering in the minds of customers and help to make them successful. Can I ask with these partners, from my experience, a lot of the partners see a lot, a lot of value in the hours that they're going to get in deploying your product. And so there's a conversation about what your product's pricing model looks like, and that becomes a you know very big part of that partnership. So have, has like the trend of usage-based pricing changed any of the strategy there? Or is it all kind of part and parcel today? You know, as partners are more focused on services and services hours, which most of them are, I think the usage-based pricing resonates super well with them, right? They don't have to go and land a massive commitment from the customer. They can go and build use cases and drive usage. And the feedback we've been getting from partners on our, you know, on our consumption-based pricing has been super positive. So I think partners are going to be, you know, that's going to resonate extremely well with partners, the usage-based pricing, because they're focused on, on hours. And, you know, if they're if the customers are only paying for the for the time they're in the product and you can start to grow the use cases. I think that's going to be, uh, you know, that's going to be a model that resonates with partners over time. It does take some time to sort of get their heads around it, but you know, it's starting to happen on mass. And certainly, the likes of Snowflake and Databricks and the cloud providers have sort of made our lives easier as we move to more of a consumption model. Okay, I want to ask a question that that you mentioned earlier, but like is very close to my heart because I live in the UK. I'm, I'm you know focused on Sapphire Ventures in Europe and the international expansion that we have. And you mentioned how at Alteryx in the past, you ran partnerships as well. You grew the business. I know that you grew it internationally. Can you explain what you did with those partnerships? Like how did you structure them? Which partner types did you leverage? How did you use all that to then move your product internationally? Maybe before like a, a really, really large Salesforce would have landed. Yeah, it was, it was a really great exercise. And you know, I was very thankful for the, the Alteryx leadership team because they gave us a lot of latitude internationally with partners. And they really believed in the partner model and you know, as we saw success, they continued to invest there. So we were very lucky. And I, and I think that's important when you have a CEO and CRO and you know, just a board and executive team who are bullish on partnerships. And, and they were. I think internationally, you know, what we saw is we had this partnership with Tableau. And you know, Tableau's partners internationally were, were doing significant business. 
So were Clicks at the time, which was another BI platform, still is. And so we went in and we kind of thought about the Tableau Salesforce. They were all hitting their numbers. Tableau was on fire. You know, some of them would engage with Alteryx. Some of them were, you know, indifferent. But their partners all wanted something else to sell. They all wanted to go and solve a problem. So, you know, that their customers had around around data prep. And you know, we ended up signing up all of the top Tableau partners internationally and making them successful. Within four years, they were doing more revenue in, in Alteryx. Many of them were than in Tableau. And you know, so we did that in in the major countries. We tried to focus very much on you know a core set of countries. And once we got to sort of some critical mass, it could be 50 customers, could be 100 customers, we would put in a sales team to go and grow that business in the market. So we did that in Germany, we did that in France, Nordics, Benelux, et cetera. We also, I actually led myself uh, Asia Pack and Latin America for Alteryx and, and the build out there. We did a similar thing there. We also did something inventive. And um, you know, we, we ended up having um, you know, somebody advise us at Alteryx from Exact Target and share so the strategy that they took, which was, you know, in some of these countries where you don't want to put resources right away, but it's a big market, do a joint venture with a good partner of yours, license them, you know, your name. In our case, it was Alteryx. We would license them the name. And once you've built some trust with that customer, you know, give them an exclusive for that country, give them some big minimums to go and hit, some big numbers, and work with them to, to really replicate your team down there. And you can always buy them back and you're buying them back for you know, less than you're getting credit for on the street. And so we did that in, in a number of markets, um, notably Australia, where we partnered with one of the top Tableau partners down there. He carved out a team and we essentially you know, badged that team up as an Alteryx team. They had some minimums. They grew the business markedly over a three-year period. And we ended up buying that business back. And a lot of those people, I think, are still with Alteryx. I mean, I keep in touch with, with those folks. So, uh, and we did it in some other markets too. So you don't want to do that too early. You want to make sure that partner's proven. But we ended up putting a team in Australia. We had a team there when we bought them. We ended up expanding that team. You know, they had hundreds of customers you know, and a very you know, strong sort of eight-figure ARR stream happening there. And uh, they also built out a partner ecosystem under them, right? So we essentially like turnkeyed that business after uh, the acquisition. I had left and they acquired them shortly after, but it's been quite successful. And I like that model if you can find the right partner. Mm. It's really unique. I hadn't actually heard that model before. So that's a, a good tidbit to take away. I guess when we talk about regions and expansion in the broader sense, partnerships and strategy, it kind of seems like when you're at a startup that every partnership could be a game changer. I mean, chances are, if you're going to get a knock on the door from any company that's you know much larger than you, then they are going to grow your revenue quite a bit. But how do you prioritize? Like, How do you take 10 partners and say no to nine and just do the work with one? Like, Why Tableau? Were they the ones that said yes? Or was it that you specifically were like, that's where the money is going to be? Yeah, I think these anchor partnerships, what we saw was you know one... You know, we'll talk about tech partnerships first, and we can talk about the channel partnerships because they are different in terms of what you look for. I think in the tech partnerships, this notion of anchor partnerships, which I mentioned before, is important. There are lots of examples of this. If you look at Marketo and Salesforce, Databricks and Azure, Alteryx and Tableau, there are a lot of these examples. Thoughtspot and Snowflake has you know been a game changer for us. And you know that finding that partner, you got to find someone with a complementary technology with strong reach into a lot of accounts. They're selling to similar personas, right? Or maybe they're getting you into new buying centers. And the way to think about it is, 
how do you do a super thoughtful product integration that's going to wow customers, right? So you start with a product, you start with a customer experience, then you tell the story, right? And so how do you go and market that? Tell the initial story. Once you start to get some customers, get customers talking about it, get partners talking about it, monetize that sort of ecosystem of, of partners around it, and then educate their field teams, make sure they know, and then go and, and just sort of double down and do it around the world in, in the areas that they're investing. So that's how we sort of looked at an anchor partner. And I think it's important you know, for an earlier stage or growth stage company, like don't go too early with the channel. Right. Because I think in many cases, like if you haven't figured out how to sell your platform, it's going to be very hard to go and educate a partner to go and sell your platform. Focus on integrating into the ecosystem. So when you're in customers, you know, you can integrate into the the surface area of of their organization. And all of a sudden you sort of build credibility. Oh, we have Snowflake, we have, you know, Matillion, et cetera. And you know, you can kind of fit into that that broader surface area. So I think that's that's the way we thought about it. And you know, certainly. You know, it's a lot of work and a lot of investment for those companies. You've got to invest in the product team. You've got to invest in marketing, and ideally have dedicated resources in that. And the companies that have done that well and made that investment early have, have been able to monetize it. Yeah, on the channel side, I think it's you know it's very similar. You know, once you find these channel partners, I think that the mistake I see a lot of companies making is you know signing up partners in regions where they really can't support them, right, or just immature regions for. You know their specific product, and I think that's hard. Really, just focus on you know core regions to start early adopter regions. Don't go too early internationally. You know it's been you know definitely lessons that we've learned. It's been over the years, and I think that's one to keep in mind. Yeah. Well, I, I guess to to follow that up, like, what is a good indicator of an anchor partner? Like, if I'm you know starting my company, we have chance to go after a couple, what are some, maybe some key aspects that you would identify? I know it's all pretty different, but you mentioned, you know, spread and integration to the product. Is there an element of having that marketplace? Is it really important that your partner has that marketplace? Does that matter less now or more now? Like what are maybe a couple other like little bits of characteristics you think? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's really important to understand the ecosystem and where it's going. I think in, in BD, everybody that I hire, I really make sure they you know, understand the product and the, and the ecosystem. So when we start to sign up partners, they, they really fit into that vision and that broader vision. So, you know, first and foremost, find somebody who's making a dent in your ecosystem, right? And somebody ideally that's a little bit bigger than you, right? And that has some momentum and you can sort of slipstream into that momentum. So I think the momentum is key. I think the willingness on their side to partner is key. There are some companies that just aren't partner friendly. They don't have APIs. It's very hard to integrate with their platform, right? They're trying to do everything themselves. And I think there are some partners who understand to be a platform, you need an ecosystem. And so you need to look for those partners. And ideally having, you know, sort of relationships there helps. I wouldn't go straight to the CEO. You know, maybe if you know him or her, it's fine. I think some people try to do that too early. It's really about working with the product team, working with the go-to-market team and getting customer feedback that this is going to be something that, you know, resonates with them. Because at the end of the day, it's all about happy customers and customers that are going in. You know, helping to you know further both the mission of of your company and the partner company. It leads me to kind of an interesting question here. I think like every startup out there is probably desperate to partner with somebody big. Like they want to saddle up next to Snowflake or Google or or Azure. That seems to be pretty difficult, just because these companies are so big and you know their BD teams are probably hundreds of people. Um, 
what is a way to become a top priority? Like what, what was it about your product that Snowflake looked at and said, yeah, let's definitely do that. Is it entirely product-based? Is it something about the team? You know, what do you try to do as a BD person to help prioritize yourself underneath a larger platform? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I probably won't speak for Snowflake, but I think what we've done here and what I've done at other companies is you've got to make it happen, right? Like it's not, the partner's not going to pull you in, right? You've got to go and create the collateral, create the story and start to generate wins, start to generate momentum and give a lot to the partner, give a lot to the reps, whoever it is, and ask for nothing, right? That's the most important thing because you're going to have to go and make it happen. You might get lucky and get some executive relationship that pulls you in. And you know some companies have done that. But I think in general, as you build these relationships, it's about building the momentum yourself, right? It's about getting buy-in. This is an important relationship. They have a rich customer base that we can go and sell into. They need our product. It's going to help sort of, in our case, make companies more data-driven, get more value out of the data. And I think as you build that momentum, people start to pay attention, right? And you can evangelize that. It's not about evangelizing it directly to the partner. You can do it on LinkedIn. You can do it on webinars. You can do it through partners. And so all of those channels to market. But I think in general, you've got to think about making it happen yourself. And it's a lot of work. And in many cases, I've been the first BD person there to go and make it happen. So you know, you've got to be willing to roll up your sleeves. You've got to be willing to get on calls with Asia at 10 o'clock at night to train a partner and to, uh, you know, talk to a customer. Uh, but that's the fun part, right? That's where, you know, I think if I go back and look at the best times I've had in, in technology companies, it's about grinding it out and getting those wins. And, you know, you certainly learn a lot on the way, a few losses, a little bit of scar tissue. But in general, you know, that's the fun part. I feel like everybody in partnerships and startups has like a lot of scar tissue from a lot of uh, really, really exhausting experiences. And on, on that realm, you know, we mentioned earlier over-prioritizing. And I guess that classic phrase that's been in the lexicon has, has been boiling the ocean. And having been in BD myself at some point, you know, I know that it's, there's a huge swath of people to go after. It's really easy to overextend. And I'm curious, have you or anybody on the teams you've been on ever gone that far where you, the team just overextended itself, tried to do too many things? Maybe something didn't happen well. What were the results like? Have you had any experience with that? Yeah, I think certainly internationally, that's where you can get pretty taxed if you start to, you know, sign up partners and markets, set expectations with them and not be able to come good on those expectations, not be able to train them. You know, as a BD team, you don't have access to all the resources, right? So if you sign up a partner in Italy, as compelling as it is to go and train them for that team in Europe, uh, it may not be their top priority at the time. So I think, you know, hyper prioritizing on it where you're going to go internationally is important because it just will create a ton of churn in your organization. They bring you into deals and if they're not trained, they're not qualified deals. No, that's where I've seen it suck a lot of time and energy. And you know, these days you just don't have that time, even if you can do it virtually, right? If you're trying to go and sell internationally. So I think that's where you need to be careful to say, okay, I'm going to focus on you know the biggest markets and not just the biggest markets, but the early adopter markets. You know, as an example, at you know, many of the companies I've been at, we've closed more new logos in the Netherlands than we have in the UK in our early days in, you know, in Europe, largely because you know, it's a curious culture, it's an early adopter culture, it's a tech-focused culture, they're focused on precision, right? So you go to places like Netherlands, 
Denmark, Sweden, Switzerland, right? They're going to take a punt and they're able to spend sort of 50 or 100K ARR on something. You get them out to events, you get 50, 60 people at an event in Amsterdam. You know, they're great markets because they're small countries. Those sort of things like double down on areas where you start to see some success and don't be afraid to say, no, we're not ready for places like, you know, that are probably going to be slower adopters, right? Or markets that you're just not going to see success within the near term. Let your competitors go and focus on those markets, you know, and then go in after they pull out. I want to ask, I don't think it's a dicey question, but if there's an enterprise technology company listening, it might be a dicey question. But when we think of the partnering that has been successful in your career, as well as uh, you know, a lot of other companies as well who, who do these really great anchor partnerships, there's this element of you make the partnership, you sign the paperwork, you go real hard, you um, have the kickoff day. And then after that, they're just enabled to go sell your product and you should just be waiting for order forms to come in. It never really works that way as much as we all think it should. We always think like, hey, why, why are the AEs of XYZ partner not selling my product as much as we should? Because you know, we did this great kickoff three months ago. I realize it's, it's more nuanced than that. So maybe can you just explain what it takes to make those things successful? Yeah. I mean, you have to teach them to fish, essentially. Essentially, you have to close their first few deals, right? Certainly with channel partners, it's about you know, them learning from you, know, you to go and close those initial deals. So I think compensation is actually key in that. So how do you compensate your sales team when they work with channel partners? If you're not doing a resale relationship, it makes it a little easier. But there still has to be some balance of trade there where the partner's getting something out of it. So I think that's one part of it is you know, make sure your sales team is focused on working with those partners. And sometimes it's frustrating, right? You don't want to bring a partner along. But ideally, you know, bringing a partner into a deal to, and closing it you know, will unlock 10 more deals for that rep. And you know, he or she is going to be pretty happy about that. Uh, so I think that's one thing. Go and help them close the first few deals. That will help to build momentum. Right. And, you know, especially after, and it's not just about closing the deals, it's about evangelizing it, you know, with other reps of that partner. I think on the tech partner side, it's about figuring out what's in it for those partners. Because when you have an anchor partnership, you know, they're not going to sell your product, right? Like Snowflake doesn't sell ThoughtSpot, nor do some of our other tech partners, but we understand what's going to make their customers successful. And it's all about the customers. And we understand how their reps are compensated. And I think that if you can do that and sort of frame it in a way that says, happier customers, we're going to go and introduce you to new buying centers, potentially executives that you're not, you don't have access to. That's where the partnership, that's where we've seen significant value. You know, and I've seen significant value at a number of different companies, right? And you know, I think it takes time to build and Slack is a great thing. You can have joint Slack channels now with your partners and you can communicate with them in real time. But you know, that's how you can, um, can really drive those partnerships and start to get momentum where they're starting to bring you in proactively, which is what you want. For the purposes of the podcast, but also just in general, you're the partnerships guru that we have. So what are the tenets of good partnerships execution? What, what should a company doesn't yet have a BD team who might be listening, who's just been doing some hodgepodge BD here and there. What should they consider when it comes to growing their partnerships team and making it successful? First and foremost, know your ecosystem, right? Know how you fit into the ecosystem, know where you want to take the company in that ecosystem and who you want surrounding you. Uh, it's going to be very hard to be standalone. 
And I think the companies who invest in the integrations around the ecosystem, that's the first thing you should do. So, you know, your first hire may not be a BD go-to-market person. It could be somebody in your product management team who's working on APIs, who's working on integrations, you know, with these third-party platforms based on customer feedback and based on the vision for your platform. So I think that's where to think about it first and foremost. I think once you have a hunch on and some, you know, customer adoption around you know, certain partnerships, or you see a, some partnership potential, you know, that's when to hire your first person on the ground. And it probably shouldn't be a leader. You know, hire somebody who, one, gets the space, and two, is willing to go and make you know, one or two of these partnerships work and focus on that to start. So I would start there. I think the other thing is that a lot of companies, we're lucky now, we have access to so much data. You, know, you can go and figure out where you know, the type of footprint a certain technology has in in enterprises or in your market, you know, based on data that you buy, based on some of these new marketing and sales automation technologies that are out there, and you know, really start to you know get smarter about where you target, right? And it's almost like a drone strike where you can figure out like where are these uh, customers and and focus on them. And so between the data that you can buy, between LinkedIn, between user groups, you know, you can start to piece together you know, where the customer, you know, concentrations of customers are. So I think as you do that and marketing gets smart about that, that's the time to start to hire, you know, and build out your BD team. I would typically start with your technology partners, not with your channel partners. Start with building around the ecosystem, then monetizing the partners in that ecosystem. Because I think that's a way to, you know, get them very familiar. Okay, this, when I see a customer that has, you know, these three technologies, I should, you know, go and position your technology. So what does that BD team then look like? Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking of it like kind of like Ocean's Eleven, right? You've got to have like people who are like very versatile, you know, in BD, especially in an early stage. So, you know, these people might have done, you know, if they can build relationships, they understand the ecosystem, like you can be ambidextrous between sort of channel partners and tech partners. So I think early on, I've gone for the athlete and found that he or she, depending on their drive and their, you know, sort of aptitude, are able to sort of manage both. Because it's very hard to say, okay, I'm going to have just a channel person start or just a tech partner person to start. That tech partner person may do some channel partnerships in that ecosystem. And so I, I've seen that be successful, especially earlier stage. I think as you get later stage, having the specialization and you know having a team that does channels and SIs. We haven't talked a lot about SIs. Is important. And then I think having you know a team that does tech partnerships is important. And I think you know these strategic OEM partnerships that you might do as well. You know you might need a different type of person for that. But the Ocean's Eleven analogy is one that I think people should keep in mind. You know you need somebody who can pick the locks and somebody who can you know charm the doorman. And finding that versatile resource is important. Yeah, I kind of like that. It's it's a testament to BD teams being a miss a mix of various people from different parts of their career and them all having a different sort of vision of what a partnership can look like because it is pretty rounded of a thing to do. Last question, and it's kind of a weird one because we don't often talk about this, but what do you do when a partnership isn't going well? What is your opinion of like, okay, we've put all these efforts in, we've, we've invested quite a bit, we are not seeing the returns, we are not being successful, we have tried to retrain a couple of times, we have tried to re-engage again, spent more capital doing that. What do you think is the best way to turn that around for success? Or, or I guess, do you, do you have to learn when to know where to, where to fold or, or what's the answer there? Yeah, look, I mean, 
most partnerships aren't going to go the way you want them to go, right? I, I'd say in, in, if you look at all of the channel partners and growth stage companies, you know, 20% of them are going to drive 80% of the revenue. And I think the other ones, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, it's a skills thing. Sometimes it's market maturity. Sometimes it's focus for them. And I think you just have to unpack, is it, is it too early for you to go into the market? And you know, it doesn't mean you have to terminate them, but just say, hey, if you come up with some opportunities, we're happy to work with you on them. We see you're not really investing. It doesn't mean you have to go and clean house. But I do think regardless, focusing on the partners that are able to drive revenue, they have reach, they have capability, they have commitment, right? Those are things that you want to look for is extremely important to you know, just double down on those. And you know, the same on the tech partner side, right? If you see a tech partnership working, put more people on it, put more resources on it, right? And milk that you know, as much as you can, because that's going to help you as a growth stage company get escape velocity, right? And once you get that escape velocity, other partnerships will emerge, your awareness will emerge, and obviously your, you know, your top line is going to grow as well. Very well said. I appreciate that. I think it's, it's very wise words for everybody who's trying to endeavor to grow business via partners. Um, Sean, that's all I have. And thank you so much for the time. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Abhishek. It was really fun. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of the Startup Guide to Growth. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and we invite you to visit sapphireventures.com for detailed show notes, additional company building resources, and information on how you can connect with Sapphire Ventures and our team. Please subscribe and rate our podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Google so that other operators and entrepreneurs can find our show. And make sure to tune into next week's episode to discover the latest trends, techniques, and strategies for startup success. Until next time, keep building. Keep building.